If you brought your Bibles with you this morning and you'd like to, you can certainly turn with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians. In just a moment, uh, I'll read from First Thessalonians and then Second Thessalonians. And as always, if you find it more convenient, a little bit easier, the passages today are printed in your bulletins as well. Uh, I said last week that this series that we have been in this summer, A Biblical Theology of Eating and Drinking, is uh, coming towards its conclusion. Uh, We have this sermon this week now, and we have uh, one more to go next week. And I hope uh, that just knowing your Bibles a little bit, you can anticipate what my text is for uh, next Sunday as we come to uh, the last passage that we will consider together in this theme. But what I have tried to do as we moved through this is to walk us through how the Scriptures present and unfold this idea of eating and drinking from beginning uh, on up to the end. And as I've presented things to us, I've tried to use that basic chronological order that, that things are presented in the Bible. Now, this topic that is before us today, what we're looking at today, if you haven't discerned this from uh, either the title of the sermon, the passages that have been read, we're looking at the relationship between work and food today. And while I could have done this one very early in the series because of the prominence of the theme as we find it in uh, the book of Genesis, I wanted to wait until now because I thought it made a little bit more sense in the order and also because of the clarity of these passages that we find in Thessalonians addressing this particular theme. So as we look at these passages, as we read them this morning, remember that this is a church that Paul and companions had planted, and it was a very young church, and this young church received the gospel with great joy, with great enthusiasm. And when you read these letters, you can't help but be encouraged by the good news and the way it was expressed in their faith and their hope and their love in their labors on behalf of the Lord. But as you would also expect, uh, they were trying to work through the faith. They were trying to understand different elements of what they had heard and how then they were supposed to live in this world. And apparently one of the issues that they were a little bit confused about was the issue of work and its relationship to the faith. What should we be doing now while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul had preached to them about the return. They were a little bit confused about that. And Paul, in writing the passages that I'm going to read for us now, speaks into that confusion and what had clearly become kind of a misunderstanding for the Thessalonians in respect to some of these very issues. So let me read the passages for us, first from uh, 1 Thess 4, uh, beginning at verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this question gets even a little bit more pointed, a little bit sharper in this next passage. 
from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living, or there's a footnote translation there, to eat their own bread, to earn their own living or to eat their own bread. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Working up an appetite. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to wait for you well in this world. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to look for your coming, to expect your coming, and to live in a way that is appropriate and consistent with it, to be found busy at what you would have us be busy at appropriately in our lives when you return. Help us today to understand these things, to deepen our appreciation of them and our walk in you. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. When God made this world, when he created us, he forged a bond between working and food and eating. Okay, very simple, working and food and eating. You can see it, for example, in the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. Psalm 128 describes God blessing his people in these very simple words, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. So this is exactly what we're talking about here, the bond between three things, working, the working producing food, and then eating the food that God has provided. You will note that when you read that blessing there, you'll see that it's not merely a blessing to have food and to eat the food, but in fact, your labor, your labor in producing that, the labor of your hands, the productivity of that is actually part and parcel of the blessing as well. And in this way, here's something we can recognize right out of the chute here as we get started. In this way, food and eating or working in food and eating is not only uh, foundational, essential, uh, symbiotic, reciprocal, as we find it in Scripture as well. It is also deeply satisfying. It's deeply satisfying for us, body and soul. God has made the bond between those three things part of the blessing. You see it played out in the life of the woman described in Proverbs chapter 31. The Proverbs 31 woman doesn't bemoan 
the work she does. She doesn't pine for some day in the future or from, for some provision of money that will allow her not to have to do all of this work anymore. She doesn't get tired of, if you will, the daily grind. She doesn't wish for the day when she'll simply be able to use her fingers like this and whatever it is she wants, whatever it is she needs for her household, instead of having to work for it, instead of having to go afar for it, instead of having to put it all together, whether it's food or whether it's clothing or whether it's bed covering or whatever it is, it'll just arrive in a box on her steps. She doesn't say, gee, that would be a great day. It would be really convenient for me if that would all take place. Rather, instead of that, it is the bond between her industry, the food that she both gathers and prepares, and the eating that is the object of her blessing, that is the object of the blessing with which her children and her husband blesses, bless her, and even the works themselves, the works of her hands, give her that praise. And so when the apostle Paul says to the people in Thessalonica, when he says, listen, if anyone is not willing to work, then neither let him eat. Paul's not trying to set up something here, and this might be the way that we initially might read something like this. He's not supposed to, or he's not trying to set up some kind of a punitive system, some kind of a penal system where you have to do this. You, you know, this is lousy, this work that you have to do, but you have to do it if you're going to enjoy this food on the other end of it. No, what Paul is looking at is the bond that exists between these things and saying, this is the good life. This is the good life as God has created us in this world, the working, the food, and the eating. That's our theme today. Sometimes I'll just say working and eating uh, just to save the, the awkwardness of saying work, food, and eating every single time. But what I want to do uh, as we work through this this morning is kind of trace the way for us this is developed throughout Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trace it in kind of four headings this morning, and I'll just do each of them one at a time. The first is this, working and eating in the created order. Okay, working and eating in the created order. So I didn't uh, read from Genesis this morning. That's mainly because I've read from Genesis a number of times in our series already. Uh, but if I had, I would have chosen the passages that would have demonstrated for us that working and eating are fundamental to the way that God created this world and the purposes that he gave to mankind. We at least saw it when we had the call to worship from Psalm 8 this morning. But he, he created us to subdue, to have dominion, to work the ground from which we were taken, to work it, and to keep it. And that's true. That's true before the fall ever took place. We could, if we wanted to, turn to uh, the scriptures and see that that was the command that existed prior to the fall. But it's also true after the fall, and that's important to say as well. Psalm 8, for example, is written after the fall. But Genesis 3.23 says this by way of reminder, Therefore God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
In other words, that's exactly the job that he had in the Garden of Eden, work the ground from which you were taken. And now God reaffirms after the fall, even in sending him out of the garden, that's the same job I've got for you. I want you to work the ground from which you were taken. And just so that we hear this and realize it as well, working the ground, okay, what does that mean, working the ground? Well, it doesn't just mean uh, providing that which would be beautiful, planting flowers, and it doesn't just mean harvesting trees for lumber and what you might build from it. It certainly means uh, those things as well. But in particular, what it means is do the work that is necessary to eat. If you're going to eat in this world, you have to do the work of working the ground that will, in fact, provide for you. Now, we know this. After the fall, this working and eating process would be subject to the curse. And as we looked at last week with respect to eating itself, it's, it's comprehensive, right? The curse and the fall in this world has impacted us in every part of our being, from our head to our toes and our stomach in between. All of that is a comprehensive impact of the fall. But nevertheless, in, in, in God's curses, even the curses that he presents to the man, to Adam, we can nevertheless see that the purposes and the structures which exist in this world, the relationship between these things of working and production of food and eating is going to be maintained. Listen, listen to what is said to Adam. Now, I, I read this for us earlier uh, with respect to the provision of food that is in each one of these verses, but listen to the connection now between working and eating that is in each one of these verses. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, which is to say your work is going to be hard. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Again, the work is going to be hard. There's going to be all sorts of things, that weeds that come up in this world. And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And the sweat of your face is, of course, now that work in the ground. That work in the ground is going to be a work by the sweat of your brow. Now, as Genesis begins, Genesis begins actually not with a command for the man and the woman to do their work, but it begins with God. Genesis actually begins with God being the worker. God the one who is the one who has produced the ground, who has taken care of the ground, who has then produced the food and gives it to the man to eat. In, in creation, it is the work of God. It is the work of God's hands, or as we saw it in Psalm 8, it is the work of God's fingers that you're looking at. Before you look at what we're commanded to do, you're looking at what God has done. God is the first worker. We're not the first worker. God is, in fact, the first worker. But here's, pardon the pun, the working assumption. The working assumption in Genesis is that in me and through me and for me and unto me, Adam and Eve, take up where I left off. Take up the task that I've been doing to this point that I got ready for you, and now take that task upon yourselves as well. In other words, working to produce food to eat is part of 
image-bearing. Work has dignity and honor because in it we image God, and we're not going to go into this right now, but not only do we image God in the work that we are doing, but we image God in the rest that we take, right? That's the way it is presented to us. That's the way the commands are presented to us, that you're imaging God in the work and you're imaging God in the rest as well. I think that this is part of what Paul was doing in Thessalonica as well. When, when he came into that town, he could have rested on their contributions to his work for his daily food that he needed, he and his companions. But instead of doing that, what he says is, we went to work in your midst that you might in us have an example and be able to imitate us. If, if you will, it's the same thing that God did as well. So, so God gave to mankind an example of the works of his hands and says, now you, now you do this as well. Paul goes into Thessalonica and gives the example of himself saying, I'm a worker, this is what I'm doing to provide for myself, for those who are traveling here with me. Now, you do this as well. You imitate us in this work. We image God, and that's what we see that is so glorious when we look at this woman described for us in Proverbs 31, or if we took time, uh, as I've done on other occasions, to look back at Boaz, we see in them that which is good and that which is worthy of imitation because in what they are doing, they themselves are imitating what God has done. God was a worker. He created. He provided the food. He said to them, eat. And these others, the Proverbs 31 woman, Boaz himself, they're workers who produce the food and say, eat and share in what we have produced. Now, the flip side of this, of course, the curse uh, that comes upon our labor and upon our eating as well, the curse is found throughout Scripture as well. We want to be realistic about this. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks at this from, if you will, the complete flip side of this. And he asks the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what good is work? What good is all this? What's the point of all of this work that we're supposed to do in this world that is full of decay, that is full of corruption, and I'm going to die and you're going to die, so what's the point of all the work anyway? That's the biblical perspective. You can look at the honor and the glory and the dignity of work, and that's completely biblical. You can flip it around from the other side and say, wait a minute. This is a world in which we see so much decay out there and so much corruption that the reality is, the reality is, not only can eating be a pain, that's what we saw last week, but work can be a real pain as well. It can be a real drag in this world as well. Okay, so working and eating are part of the created order. That's really what I want us to see there in that first section. Uh, they're good but, of course, corrupted as well. Secondly, and here we get to really the heart of our sermon today, is that we want to see and maintain and develop the interconnectedness of working and eating. That's what I want us to see in Scripture, the, the, the interconnectedness of working and eating. Biblical theology is really an exercise as a discipline, and I've talked about this at various points, even at the beginning of this series. Biblical theology is an exercise in seeing how the themes of the Bible come together. 
in seeing the connections that exist in the Word of God. In fact, it's not too much to say that my primary goal in this biblical theological journey over the past three summers where we have looked at clothing and then we've looked at place and then this summer we're looking at eating and drinking is to help us see how what can seem to us to be disparate parts of our lives and of our existence are in fact deeply woven into the Bible, into God's story of creation and fall and redemption and glory, and then how God wants us to live. The premise for all of this is quite simple. If all things are from, in, and unto Jesus, then okay, show me how work is part of that. If, if all of it is in Jesus, then, then show us how to love it and how to live it. A few weeks ago, and this is getting now at the theme of the connectedness, a few weeks ago, I noted how personal giving or tithing and eating is. If you would be the one who raised the cow and slaughtered it, or if you were the one who raised the corn and harvested it and then brought it to Jerusalem, it would be deeply and truly personal. Somehow the worship of giving or tithing is, is both at the same time harder because it's really a part of you, it's really something that the sweat of your brow has gone into, that the work of your hands has gone into, it would be harder to give that away, and at the same exact time, it's also much sweeter to give those things away. And the same is true for work, food, and eating. So some of the Thessalonians were becoming idle, or worse, they were becoming busybodies. They were not fulfilling the callings the duties that God had for them, they were, and, and this is now to connect it to what we were just talking about with the creational order, they were living disorderly lives, lives that were out of accord with the way that God had created humanity, with the way that God had established order in this world. Work, food, eat, that's the order. And they were out of accord with exactly that thing. And so Paul exhorts them to reconnect that which they had disconnected. And Paul's trying to show them that work isn't, in fact, a distraction from a life of faith. Rather, it's an expression of the life of faith. It's, in fact, the, the playing field in which the life of faith is played out. It takes up a, an enormous amount of the percentage of the time of our lives, of their lives as well. In fact, the word for work, or one of the primary words for work in the Old Testament, is also one of the words that is primarily used for worship as well. Let my people go that they may serve me on this mountain. They serve right there. That's obviously they're going to worship at that mountain. But that word serve is the exact same word that is used in Genesis to describe the work that they are to do. 
And so there's a connection that exists in expression of both our worship and our work as well. The warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 on the front of your bulletins is one that is apropos in this context. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Recall to whom these words are being spoken. A generation of people who had been receiving from God manna that came down from heaven. Outside of the norm. The norm is work, food, eat. But for 40 years, manna was being given from God from heaven. And so the the work part of that, at least in what we would traditionally think as raising crops and getting things together, uh, that wasn't a part of it, right? Because, because God was providing directly for them. He says, now listen, you're going to come into the land, and when you come into the land, you're going to be blessed by me. You're going to be doing the work that I've given you to do, the normal work of taking care of the land and of harving, harvesting it. And he says, be careful that you don't forget the lesson that I've been trying to teach you for 40 years, and that is you must depend on me. You must see the connection that exists between the work that you're doing, the food that you're producing, the eating that you're enjoying. You have to see that all of that comes in the context of what? My covenant. You have to see that it's all from me. It's all a gift of grace. The starting point may be different. And because the starting point is different, in other words, not coming down from heaven direct, but instead going through a normal process, the starting point might make you think that you're the one who's doing the work, that you're the one who's responsible for all of the good things. And God says, but behind that starting point, there's actually another starting point back there, and that's me. I'm always the starting point, whether direct or through the means that I've established as a creational order. God says, don't forget this. So Paul looks at the Thessalonians, and he sees that they were, and let's borrow language here, that they were dividing what God had joined together. They they were separating something that God had joined together. God had fused working and eating from the beginning. And in fact, Paul says to them, he goes so far as to say to them, work with your hands. And after all, that's what Paul did, right? Paul, when he was there, worked with his hands. Paul was a tent maker. Paul worked with leather. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't ashamed to be a craftsman in their midst, earning a living with his hands. In one sense, Paul is simply saying that no work is too lowly for the Christian. He's simply saying, listen, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you do it with your mind or whether you do it with your hands, do the work that you've been given to do. But I think we can see something more. And I just want to look at it just a little bit. When you work with your hands, the connections that I'm talking about are easier to see. Working with your hands, making something, something that is handmade, is deeply personal. Now, not right now, but this afternoon, you're sitting together as families or, or, or an individual, you're just reflecting on the sermon. Go back and look at the hands of the woman in Proverbs 31. Just look at the word hands and look at Proverbs 31 and see how it's developed. And then contrast that with the hands of the sluggard in Proverbs chapter 6. 
Look at the difference between what those hands are doing. Her hands are beautiful. They're industrious. They're creative. They're busy hands. Paul says to the Thessalonians, work with your hands. Well, what does that mean to us? What does that mean to us in a culture where, as it turns out, most of us, most of us for profession, aren't craftsmen of some sort? And just doing a quick scan here real quickly, I don't think any of us are farmers. I don't think a single person in this room is an actual farmer. Well, perhaps your job allows you to work with your hands. And if it does, I think that's a blessing. I think it's a blessing because you can see tangibly you can feel, touch, see a little bit more the relationships that we're talking about here. Now, I don't want to idealize anything. I don't want to idealize manual labor here, and I don't want to idealize intellectual labor as not. They're all subjected to the fall. But if your work, let me just suggest this, if your work doesn't require you working with your hands, I would encourage you to find a way or to find something in addition to whatever it is the normal job that you do, something that allows you to work with your hands. If, for example, just an example out of the blue, if, for example, you were to decide to work the ground from which you were taken, and by the grace of God in your work, you managed to produce, you managed to produce two tomatoes. Okay, you, you get a little pot, you set the pot on your balcony if you live in an apartment, and your tomato plant produces two tomatoes. Then give one away, and eat the other, giving thanks to God. Now, that's more than a tithe, but if you only got two, you're going to have to do it some way. Give one away, eat the other, and you will see afresh the God-established connections between working and food and eating. And you will see it in the midst of this fragmented world because what this fragmented world wants to do is to divorce those things, to pull those things apart to sell you the idea that whatever you have done to produce that food, whatever work you've done to cook it, to prepare it, that's too much. It's too much work. In fact, it would just be easier for you if you would just buy it and add water or just buy it and put it in the microwave. That's what this world wants to convince you is both good and healthy. It wants to sell you comfort and ease. It wants to sell you food without work without the work of your hands being invested in that. And if you do it, you'll bring it back together again. So, so two things, and they're the longest points, so don't be afraid here. Uh, working and eating, we've got the created order, and secondly, the connections. Third, working and eating go together in a way that is deeply pleasurable and satisfying. If you give one tomato away and you eat the other, I can almost guarantee you, I can guarantee, I can guarantee you, it will be delightfully delicious. And when your friend comes to you and says, you know that tomato you gave me the other day? Woo, that was a delicious tomato. It will multiply your pleasure. It will multiply the pleasure in the work of your hands that they have done, in the giving that you have done, in the brotherly love that you have showed, and in the actual eating, your tomato will taste better. It'll be sweeter. It'll be nicer to you as well. I said this at the beginning. Paul's command to work and eat is not punitive or penal. It is a corrective that is given to these people to restore 
pleasure. The pleasure is threefold. In the first place, it is pleasing to God. It is pleasure to God. I didn't read this verse, but uh, uh, the, the passage that I read from 1 Thess 4 begins in 1 Thess 4, 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, do it more and more. The more you do your work, the more you produce the food, the more you eat that thing, the greater the pleasure is to God. Do it to please God. All of the, we won't look at them, but the, the other work passages that are found, uh, for example, in Ephesians and in Colossians, both of them exhort us, don't be men-pleasers. Don't put in the first place pleasing men as the reason you do a good job or the reason you do a good job at one particular moment because somebody's looking at you. Instead, what you are seeking to do is to glorify God, to please God in what you are doing. God's pleased when you work, when you work with your hands and when you eat. Secondly, it's pleasing to those who are around you when you work in this way. Now, let me, let me just be real here for a moment. If you work real hard, there are going to be people around you who aren't going to like that. You've probably experienced that already in this world. There are those who will not be excited about you working harder than they are. That doesn't make them look very good. They don't really like that. But that said, there are others around you who will be pleased with what you are doing. The context of what Paul writes, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, is brotherly love. Right? How to love one another more and more. Let me tell you how to love one another more and more. Do your work. Do your work. And then in 2 Thessalonians, you know, this, the context, all of it is, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing that which is good. And so should we, we should be doing these things so that we're not, and this is the negative side of it, so that we're not a burden, so we're not a drain, so that we're not a bother to our brothers and sisters who are around us when we work well. Paul, Romans 15, 2, says this, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. How do you bring pleasure to your neighbor? Is a question with respect to working. And then third, it's pleasing to you. It's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to others. It's pleasing to you as well. Eating when you have worked for it is much more pleasant. Much more pleasant. In the first sermon, I mentioned an essay uh, only by title by Wendell Berry called The Pleasures of Eating. Now what I'd like to do is read a section, a part of that essay. Berry writes, The pleasure of eating should be an extensive pleasure, not that of the mere gourmet. Parentheses. So the, the mere gourmet, the idea here is you've just got the ingredients and you're putting them together, or the gourmet might be just the person who is tasting those things. So Barry's saying, that's not what I'm talking about here. Let me start again. The pleasure of eating should be an extensive pleasure, not that of the mere gourmet. People who know the garden in which their vegetables have grown and know that the garden is healthy will remember the beauty of the growing plants, perhaps in the dewy first light of morning when gardens are at their best. Such a memory involves itself with the food and is one of the pleasures of eating. 
The knowledge of the good health of the garden relieves and frees and comforts the eaters. The same goes for eating meat. The thought of good pasture and of the calf contentedly grazing flavors the steak. Some, I know, will think it bloodthirsty or worse to eat a fellow creature you've known all its life. On the contrary, I think it means that you eat with understanding and with gratitude. A significant part of the pleasure of eating is one's accurate consciousness of the lives and the world from which food comes. The pleasure of eating, then, may be best, the best available standard of our health. What Barry is say, saying is simply this. If there's pleasure to be had, the pleasure is not only to be had in the moment when you put delicious food into your mouth. That's obviously pleasurable. All of us have done that at some point and experienced the pleasure of that moment. What Barry is saying is there's an extensive pleasure when you, A, know, you know about the garden, you know about the pasture, you know about the processes, and B, you know about them because you worked them. You're the one who did them. You're the one who cared for those things. And because of that, the food tastes better. That's, that's the line of argumentation there. Now, again, the point, please, please don't hear what I'm saying today the wrong way. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we should all go out and become farmers by any means. Uh, we too, Lauren and I, we appreciate the world in which we live as well. But what I am saying is that where we can resist just a little bit the, the marketing ploys that are out there and engage ourselves in this process that God has ordained of working and producing the food and then eating the food, our pleasure will be multiplied as we do exactly that thing. And this is the fourth and final point, and I'll make it briefly. I think it's wonderfully ironic, this last point. Paul, if you notice this, in addition to the commands or parallel part of the commands uh, to work with your hands, Paul has commanded them to do this in quietness, okay, to provide for themselves, to be, if you will, self-sufficient, so that you're not a burden to the people who are around you. Now, don't misunderstand Paul at this point. Paul very much respects the fact that we live in an integrated society. There are different callings that people have, and therefore it's good when people do various things and come together and work together in a good way. But Paul says and notes that the idea here is you can also do that in a bad way. You can also do that in a way where you're just mooching off of other people, and Paul's concerned about exactly that thing. And so he, he says, quietness, providing for yourselves, and it all looks very uh, private. It sounds very self-contained, if you will, but it's not. Paul has in view outsiders and the ability to do good. That is what is squarely in view when he's giving these injunctions with respect to working and eating the food that God has provided. Look at outsiders. Look at doing good. Work. Work with your hands and be productive and eat so that, so that others can see it. So that other people see it. 
namely in this world, other people can see you living out the created order that is established by God. And they might think, oh, that's silly to do those type of things. Wouldn't it be better if people just gave us money? If we just won money in some particular way? Instead, when you are doing that, when you are working and producing food through whichever means, you're working and producing food and you're eating, it may seem quaint to the world, but in fact, what you are doing is revealing the creational order, revealing that which is good into the midst of this world. You do it so that others see it. You do it so that you can give to others. When you do that, God will bless it, God will provide for you, and you will be able to give to others as well. That's the idea of let us continue, brothers, to do good to the people who are around us. And it's the same idea from Proverbs 31. She opens her hands to the poor and needy and and reaches out her hands to the needy. Why can she do that? Because her hands are busy at home. Her hands are busy at home. They're full. They're hands that are working all the time. And because they're busy at home, she can open them to those who are needy as well. Working, producing the food, and eating finally so that she can invite others to be at your table. To be at your table, to be with you, to enjoy the largesse of God's goodness, the bounty that he has provided for us. Without recapping, I'll just let a passage from Proverbs 28 that we read earlier be our closing sentence. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Lord, we pray that in whatever way you would help us to develop deeper connections and a deeper sense of appreciation of the way that you have formed this world and of the work that you have given us to do in this world in a way that honors and glorifies you as we see your goodness and as we are able to share your goodness with others as well. Lord, we are accustomed to complaining about work. Oftentimes, as we confessed earlier in the service, our industry becomes idolatry. And we lose balance and we lose focus and sometimes we get lazy and sometimes we don't do the things that you have called us to do. Forgive us for that, Lord. Renew in us a right spirit, a right understanding of the way that you have created this world. Deepen in us an appreciation for the order that you have established and maintained in a world even when it has been corrupted by sin. And help us to approach you in these things in a way that seeks your glory and your pleasure, knowing that that is best. Guide us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our hymn of response to this is a hymn of consecration of every part of our body, of our lives unto the Lord, 585.